Let's pray. Lord, from the South Campus to the North to downtown, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, we are your people gathered under your word now, eager for you to speak. And so, Holy Spirit, come. I ask in the name of Jesus and control my mouth and my heart and my mind and grant ears to hear and may the transaction be saving and strengthening and healing and unifying and reconciling and beautifying. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the 30-year theological trademarks of our church is the way we understand the relationship between men and women in the home and in the church and in society. If you want to put a name on the way of life that we love and teach, it would be complementarian with an E in the middle, not an I, built around the world the word complement, meaning complete or fill out, beautify. In other words, when it comes to human sexuality, we believe that the greatest display of God's glory and the greatest joy of human relationships and the greatest fruitfulness in ministry come about when the deep, profound, differences between men and women are embraced and celebrated as complements of one another rather than nullified or diminished. The intention of the word complement or complementarian to describe our view is to locate us in life between two kinds of errors. The abuses of women through male domination on the one side and the negation of gender differences when they have beautiful significance on the other side. Which means that complementarians acknowledge the history of abuses of women personally and systemically and the present evils globally and locally of the exploitation and the diminishing of women and girls. And on the other hand, complementarians lament the feminist and egalitarian impulses to minimize God-given differences between men and women and dismantle the order of creation that God has designed for our flourishing in life together. So we're trying to find our way between those lamentable truths. So we say we resist impulses of a chauvinistic or dominating or abusive culture, and we resist Impulses of sex-blind, gender-leveling, unisex culture. We take our stand between these two ways 
not because the middle ground is a safe place. It is emphatically not a safe place. You double your enemies here. But because we think that it is God's good plan for us, really good, as he said, very, very good in Genesis 1. That's why we stand where we stand, because we see it in God's good, holy, loving, wise word. In fact, I personally would say that the attempt by feminism to remedy the male abuse of women by the nullifying of gender differences backfires badly and produces millions of men that women cannot enjoy because of their unmanliness and cannot endure because of their distorted, brutal manliness. It doesn't produce something beautiful. In other words, if, if we don't teach boys and girls about the truth and the beauty and the value of their differences from one another, they will not grow up to be healthy, mature men and women. They will grow up dysfunctionally. And a generation of young adults comes into being that simply don't know what it means to be a man and don't know what it means to be a woman. And the the cultural price for this is enormous. So what I want to do in this message is start from the general and move to the specific. So there are three parts to the message. Humanity... Male and female text. So kind of backwards from the way we usually do it. Just talk a lot about the big picture and the vision with some illustrations and then put some Bible underneath it to try to show the roots of it. So we'll go down that way. So let's start with the broad a word about being human. My first... Sunday at Bethlehem was July 13, 1980, and this building didn't exist, that building didn't exist, the one in the middle did exist, and I was in the old sanctuary over there on the Sunday evening after I'd preached my first sermon in the morning and was giving my, my first message in the evening. It was entitled, Life is Not Trivial, and I said this as I began. It's online. Everything I've ever said is online. So everything human every human being now and then feels a longing that life not dribble away like a leaky faucet. You've all tasted the desire that day-to-day life be more than a series of trifles. It can happen when you're reading a poem or when you're kneeling in your closet. Or when you're standing by a lakeside, sunset. It very often happens at birth and death. I quoted Deuteronomy 32:46. Lay to heart all the words which I enjoin upon you this day, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no trifle for you, but it is your life. 
deep in every God-created human soul, bearing the insignia of humanity in the image of God, there is a longing for life not to be meaningless, not to be empty, not to be small, not to be trivial, banal, inconsequential, frivolous. This week, I read a quote from Agatha Christie, just stumbled upon it, the uh, crime novelist, died in 1974. She said this, I like living. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow, but through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a grand thing. That's true. To be a living human being is a grand thing. Haven't you had those rare and wonderful moments when you're standing by a window or a door or anywhere And suddenly, unbidden, powerful, comes the awakening. And you simply say, I'm alive. I'm alive. Not like a tree. Not like a rabbit. Like a human being. I'm thinking. I'm feeling, I'm longing, I'm regretting, I'm grieving, I'm alive. Made in the very image of God. And that is a grand thing. That's a grand thing. And it only breaks over us every now and then how grand it is. Part of the grandeur of being a living human being is being created in the image of God as male or female. Genesis 1.27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him male and female. He created them. Nobody is generic. Human. Nobody. They don't exist. He didn't make any that way. You are female to the roots of your being or male to the roots of your human being. And it is a grand thing. Amazing. Just look at each other. Amazing. To be alive as a woman or alive as a man. Both grandly in the image of God. Kings and queens of the universe in the making. It's a travesty of these human natures to think 
that God, God's only design in doing it this way was for making and nursing babies. That's a travesty. The differences are too many and too deep for such a superficial explanation. A woman is a woman to the depths of her being and a man is a man to the depths of his being. And that is a grand thing. And so my first point is God has done a grand thing in making you a woman or in making you a man in his image. A grand thing. Glory in being alive as a woman or a man in the image of God. It is no trifle. Second, an illustration of manhood and womanhood and what it is trying to get at the heart of the matter in these differences that are so much deeper than our plumbing. A picture is, is worth a thousand words, maybe even a word picture. Suppose two young adults at the downtown campus, which I happen to be at right now, but not everybody listening to this is. Suppose two young adults, say they're 20 years old, Sunday morning, they've just been in class together, campus outreach, maybe, and uh, walking toward the sanctuary or talking to each other, never met each other before, and he likes what he hears and what he sees. And as they approach the door of the sanctuary, he says, are you sitting with anyone? So they sit together. They notice how each engages with God, and they like what they see. When the service is over, they're leaving... And he says to her, do you have any lunch plans? I'd love to treat you to lunch. Now, at that point, she's totally in charge and can send the signal, no, and don't ask any more. Or, yes, and she would say, in the first case, I do, but thanks. And her body language and her tone of voice and her polite no would be, thank you. Anyway, or she might say, I do, but may I make a phone call? And I think I could probably change them because I would enjoy that very much. That's another signal. So she does that, and neither of them has a car. And uh, he suggests, why don't we walk down to Maria's Cafe about 10 minutes from here? on Franklin and 11th, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll figure out a way to get back to wherever they are, campus or something. On their way there, in the conversation, he finds out she has a black belt in martial arts. In fact, he finds out that she's one of the best in the state. At 19th and 11th, two uh, men accost them with uh, 
ominous expressions and say, pretty girl you've got there, fella. We'd like her purse and your wallet. And then they say, in fact, she's really pretty. We'd like her. Now the thought goes through his head, she's got a black belt in martial arts. But instead of stepping behind her, he takes her elbow with a firm grip and just eases her back and says, you touch her, it'll be over my dead body. And he tackles them both. And while he tackles them, he says, run. They knock him out cold. And the next thing they know, they're both on their back with their teeth bashed in. <laughs> little crowd gathers and um, the ambulance comes. They put him in the ambulance. She gets in the ambulance with him. And as she's riding to the hospital with this man, she looks down at him and says to herself, this is the kind of man. I want to marry. Okay, that's my sermon. (laughs) Um, Here's the point of the story. The point of the story is that the deeper differences between manhood and womanhood are not superior or inferior competencies. That's the point of the story. They are rather deep dispositions or inclinations written on the heart, albeit often very distorted. First, point out three things from the story. First, he took the initiative and asked her if he could sit with her, If she would go to lunch, he suggested the place and how to get there. She saw what he was doing. She responded freely according to her desires, and she joined the dance. You know, when a man and a woman dances, if they're both very good, he's generally taking the initiative, and she's following, and nobody even thinks about that because the coordination is beautiful. Second, he wanted to treat her to lunch. He's paying. This sends a signal. I think my responsibility in this relationship, in this little drama right now, is that I not only initiate, but I provide. She understands that. She approves of that. She supports the initiative, graciously accepts the offer, and this says nothing about who's wealthier nor does it say anything about who's better at making a living. Third, it is irrelevant to the masculine soul, as God made it, I believe, that a woman he is with has a greater capacity for defending herself than he does for defending her. That is irrelevant to his soul when this danger appears. 
He's not expedient. He's not calculating. He's a man. Over my dead body, you'll touch her. That's what he says. That's what he always says. It's a matter of manhood. And you know it's not a matter of competency. She took him out in the end. To get the message here, this is not ever about superior or inferior competencies of leadership, competencies of provision, competencies of protection. It's never about that. It's always about what's in the soul of a woman, what's in the soul of a man, to be man and to be woman. At the heart of mature manhood is a God-given sense disposition, inclination, that the primary responsibility, note the word primary, it's never sole responsibility, that the primary responsibility lies with him when it comes to leadership initiative, provision and protection. And the heart of mature womanhood is the God-given sense or disposition or inclination That this doesn't say anything about her inferiority, but is a beautiful thing to come alongside of, gladly affirm, gladly receive his leadership, his provision, his protection, and join him in the enterprise of life. That's my story in the middle. Now, Bible. For those who disagree with complementarian people that I'm trying to explain, the easiest criticism right now in this message, and it it would be typical, would be shaking their heads and saying, don't you realize that is all just culture, Piper? It's just what you learned as a kid. It's just the movies you've watched. It's just Western. It's just, don't you realize how cultural what you said, what you just said was? I mean, you're you're so naive that you don't realize how utterly enslaved you are in your little myopic world of Western chivalry. I can't believe you. That's what they'd say. And, And they would make you look stupid. Now you, you, a lot of young people here, a lot of young people watching this, you've got to decide if that's true. Because that's what will be said. And you just have to decide if that's true. And so what I want to do is just give you one passage of Scripture and, and then another one quickly, one more detail, one quickly, and just and let you look and see, okay, does that have any roots here? Does that picture of leadership and provision and protection, primary inclination, disposition, responsibility with a woman coming in alongside, supporting that, joining hands and saying, yes, we're going to do this and you keep doing that, I'm going to keep supporting you in that. And Is that just cultural or has that got sunk roots that are way back in God's mind for us and the flourishing of our life together? So let's go to Ephesians 5. We'll look at the Marriage first and then briefly look at the church as the church is a kind of 
home, a kind of family. And so what's true in the family as God designs it has its correspondences in the church as God's family as well. So I'm going to read this entire chapter from verses 22 to 20 to 33. You be listening now for all three of those pieces of manhood and womanhood and the, the dance that God has, has choreographed for us to, to dance together in life. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is Ephesians 5:22. As to the Lord... For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water in the Word, so, he might, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Four observations from this passage. Number one, marriage is a dramatization of Christ's relationship to his church. Verse 32, this mystery is profound and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Number two, in this drama, the husband takes his cues from Christ and the wife takes her cues from God's will for his church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own Husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Third, the primary responsibility, note the word primary again, a lot of details to get worked out in families here. We're not talking about those. The primary responsibility for initiative and leadership in the home is to come from the husband who's taking his cues from Christ, the head. And here's perhaps the most important thing that needs to be said. As you can see in verse 25, this is not about rights and power. This is about responsibilities and sacrifice. Headship, leadership, 
in a marriage or any other Christian sphere is not about rights and power. It's about responsibility and sacrifice. Let's read it again, verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus was not on a power trip when he came to to the world. He was on a sacrifice trip. His aim was to die for his bride. That's what he came to do, to make her beautiful that way. To make her a queen for him. No authoritarianism, no arrogance. Here's a man whose pride has been broken. He has a need for a savior. And he's willing to bear the burden of leadership given to him by his master no matter how heavy the load. Godly women see this and are glad. Pause here. Listen. If you've ever been around anybody or have ever had the thought that headship and leadership in the home is some kind of power move or macho, oppressive, control freak action. You don't have a clue the dance. I want to stress this because I'm, I've been married for 44 years And I have children, five of them, ranging from 40 to 17. I've been at this a long time trying to do this. And men, this is not a job you want. If God had not called you to bear this, not wield this, bear this weight, you wouldn't want it. I promise you, young man, you don't want this unless God has called you, which he has, to it. To bear the weight of responsibility. So when Jesus knocks at the front door because there's a financial problem or a relational problem and Noel answers the door, he says, is the man of the house home, ma'am? I'll talk to you later. I want that man and call him to account first. That's not a job you want, neither in parenting, nor in marriage, nor in pastoring. Get that? This is not about rights and power. This is about weight on your back, day and night, to make it right. Impossible to bring up kids that way. Impossible to be married that way. Just, you got to do it. So I just hope nobody leaves these rooms saying, I get to be the head. I get to be the power. I get to be the leader, controller. You don't have a clue what you're in for. Number four, 
leadership in the home involves the sense of primary responsibility for nourishing provision and tender protection. And I get that from verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, man. And she's your flesh. That's the analogies. He knows he's talking about this flesh first, and then we're one flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. As Christ does, the church. And the word nourishes implies nourishing provision. You you nourish your children. You nourish your wife. You nourish relationships. Meaning you feed them. You you give in to them. You provide what they need. You're an endless source. You're being drained all the time. You've got to be the source. Primarily. Women. And the word cherishes implies tender protection. Women don't want you to be harsh. You can't be harsh. Mean-spirited, hard, demanding. It's not what you do if you're a godly leader. So... This is what Christ does for his bride. This is what godly husband feels the primary responsibility to do. So some summary statements go like this. A complementarian concludes that biblical headship for the husband is the divine calling. It's a divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And biblical submission, complementarians conclude, is for the wife to experience her divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Help. Bring any texts for you. A helper suitable. Perfect for him. Couldn't make it without her. Now, we don't have time to develop the arguments for how all this works itself out in the church or the details for the family, for that matter. But I am going to say a word about the church and then wrap it up. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have exercise authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He's saying that about the church that Timothy is leading. In the context, what we at Bethlehem think that means is that the primary responsibility for governance and teaching, primary responsibility for governance and teaching belongs to spiritual called men. These two functions, governance or having authority and teaching, are the two gifts or functions that distinguish elders from deacons. So our simplest, plainest way to apply it at Bethlehem is to say 
the elders of this church who are charged with the governance and the teaching should be men. And below that, there is great variety. In other words, since the church is a family of God, the realities of headship and submission in the family have a reflection in the, in the church. And so let me try to sum those up. Authority. What is authority in the church? How would you define authority in the church? And, and then how would you define submission to that authority in the church? This is very tricky. A lot of churches are in trouble over this right now. And I am so thankful that we've been pretty peaceable about all this for these decades together. And maybe the reason is because of these, these kinds of definitions. Here's the way I think authority works itself out def- as a definition. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Long sentence. Here's Submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, men and women, to honor and affirm that leadership and that teaching and to be equipped by it for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. Now that last point, hundreds and hundreds of avenues of ministry for men and women in the church and in the world is very important. Men and women who have a heart to minister, that is, Christian men and women, a heart to save souls, heal broken lives, resist the evil, meet needs, the fields of opportunity for a woman or a man with a heart like that are simply endless. If you ever say, well then what can we do if we can't be elders? Like, just like thousands and thousands of opportunities await a woman and a man with a heart to want to serve people. Love people, meet needs, resist evil, build up people, save people. Endless opportunities are there around the world for all the gifts in biblical ways of expression. Which means that nobody, man or woman, stays at home watching soaps or ball games while the world burns. Don't ever buy into this criticism. I just read some of them online the other day. That complementarians have the wildest nutty notion that women can only glorify God as mothers or housewives. Like the thousand single women in this church can't glorify Jesus? <laughs> what kind of nutcase is that talking? Well, they're, they're people who just want to defame the truth, a beautiful truth. This is a call, I close now, this is a call for men and women to realize that it is a grand thing to be created in God's image as a male 
or a female. It is a grand thing to be a man and to be a woman in the image of God. But since primary responsibility lies with the men, let me close with an exhortation to the men. Men, do you have, do you have a moral vision for your family if you're married? Do you have a moral vision for what this family is and where you want it to, to be and to go? Do you have zeal for the house of the Lord? Do you have a magnificent commitment to advance the kingdom in your sphere? Do you articulate a dream for the mission of the church? Do you have a tender-hearted tenacity to see all of this through? If you don't, you can't lead a godly woman. She's a grand thing. There are many of them in this church aching for men to rise to the kind of leader she wants, needs, delights in, would flourish with. So men, bite this bullet and grow into this. There are hundreds of men like that in this church and I rejoice over it. And there need to be more, just like there need to be more godly women. When the Lord visits this church, or let's just say His church globally, when the Lord visits the global church and a mighty army of deeply spiritual, humble, strong, Christ-like men committed to the Word of God are raised up in this kind of leadership, I believe a vast army of women will rejoice over that leadership and these men and those women will link arms and a joyful partnership will have tremendous power. It will be a grand thing. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that women of the truth and men of faith would in this dance, this dynamic, this beautiful parable of Christ and the church expressed in appropriate ways in singleness and appropriate ways in empty nesters and appropriate ways in 12-year-olds, appropriate ways at the office, on the street, with the mailman or male woman. All these ways, you would teach us the beauty and the grandeur of what it is to be made this way. So that Christ would be honored and we would rejoice and flourish together. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.